Let's turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The Psalms are full of allusions to Christ, prophecies about Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 is one of those that's particularly clear in the way it points to the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. In its context, it's referring to the Davidic king of Israel, but it's looking forward to the greater David, the greater king, the Christ, who will come. Uh, And that's what we'll take up in the New Testament text. So let's start here with Psalm 2. This is the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen. And our New Testament text, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God that he's given us his word. Let's pray now and ask him to bless it to our hearts. Lord, let us not hear the words now of a mere man. Let us hear your word, the very word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would call, that you would speak, that we would listen, that we would trust by your almighty spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Matthew 16, the section we're at here, is a crucial part of the Gospel of Matthew. Every part's crucial, of course, but this is standing at the very heart and the very core of the Gospel. Uh, it's bringing together three strands, three of the major strands that, that are, 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 are key to Matthew's Gospel. Strand number one that it's drawing together for us is uh, Jesus' identity. This is the way Matthew has begun his Gospel from the very beginning. He's been answering the question, who is Jesus? And he's been building the case, chapter by chapter by chapter, about Jesus' identity, that he is the Christ. Uh, that he's the son of the living God. He's laid out pages after pages of evidence, fulfillment of the Old Testament promises that Jesus is the king who is promised, the Christ who is promised. And, and he, he takes that strand that he's been working out this whole time for us, and he brings it to a great climax here in chapter 16 as Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the first strand we're, we're seeing brought together. Uh, strand number two is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission. What, 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 is, what is he doing? He's the king. What's, what's the king come to do? He's the Christ. What's the Christ come to do? Uh, and and Matthew's, been, Matthew's been drawing this out through his gospel as well, that Jesus has come to bring the kingdom, that he's, that he's come to save his people, uh, to establish the new creation, and he's done this over and over through these miracles that he's been doing, through his... Uh, through his uh, through the, the healings and the, 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 the power he demonstrates over the natural world, he's revealing his pity and his power. And again, we're seeing this strand brought to a climax in Matthew 16. Immediately after Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, here's my mission. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And there's a third strand. So number, the, the first strand, Jesus' identity. The second strand, Jesus' mission. The third strand that we've traced throughout Matthew's Gospel, and again brought to a climax here in chapter 16, is not so much about Jesus. This one's how you respond to him. This is about how you react to what you see in Jesus. We've, we've seen this, right? Some people love him, follow him, cry out for mercy from him. Other people hate him, want to do everything they can to stop him and destroy him. Some people have an outward attraction to him because he meets their physical needs. He gives them bread for free. He heals them when they're sick, right? But they don't love him as their savior from their sins. And they don't submit to him as their king. And over and over we've seen Jesus getting at his disciples, what they believe, right? Do they trust? Do they believe? And now he brings that to a head here in Matthew 16 as he says, but who do you say? That I am. So here, we're seeing each of these great strands of, of the gospel being brought together in this great, this great section, this great chapter, Matthew 16. Everything up to this point has been building to this. Everything from this point out is going to flush, the, flush this out more. And Jesus is, is telling us that he is the Christ, that he's going to build his church, and he's calling us to trust in him. We are so quick, loved ones. You know it, and I know it. We're so quick to doubt him, to distrust him, to be overwhelmed by the sin in our own lives or the darkness we see in the world around us and lose sight of the fact that he is the Christ and that he is building his church. Um, and so he calls us here. He's testing us. He's prodding us. He's commanding us, drawing us to, to trust 
in who he is and what he is promising to do. Two simple headings then. Two simple headings as we work through the text here. Number one, who Jesus is. Number two, what he promises to do. Who Jesus is, number one. Verses 13 to 17. Uh, as, we, as we dive into the text, remember the context. Um, Jesus, in the previous section, called his disciples, again, little faiths. He keeps calling them little faiths. He called them this back in chapter 630. He calls them this in chapter 826. He calls them little faiths again, chapter 1421. And now chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, little faiths. Full of doubt. Slow to understand and, and slow to believe. They don't have no faith, but their faith is often misinformed and, uh, and unsure and hesitant. But now Jesus is drawing out their faith. It seems likely to me that this is one of the reasons why we read here in verse 13 that Jesus is, is, is getting away even further than he's gone before with, his, with this small group of disciples. He's heading up to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is at the very top of, of Israel. It's, it's almost not even in Israel. It's in almost a Gentile territory. Uh, it, it, it's, it's full of Gentile influence. There's a, there's a temple there to the pagan god Pan built on the ruins of an old... Baal worship site from, 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 from way far, far ago in the Old Testament. Um, and, and there Jesus takes them uh, to, to get away and to drive some things home to his disciples. They're, they're about to turn and head south to Jerusalem and, and, and the last events of Jesus' life and ministry. So before they enter that storm, he's drawing out their faith here. So he asks them, verse 13, who do people say that I am? Uh, who, who is the Son of Man? He's been minister- Jesus has been doing many things. He's been ministering for, 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 for three years now. Teaching, preaching, doing miracles, uh, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people, calming storms. He hasn't gone outright calling himself the Christ uh, because that title is, is given so much um, uh, uh, false expectations from the Jewish people at this time. Um, but, but he's been doing all these things that show that he is the king promised from the Old Testament. So he asks his disciples, what are people saying? You're out in the streets. What are you hearing people are saying about, about me? Um, how do they answer? Let's say some say you're John the Baptist. Um, John had been immensely popular. Uh, uh, he was preaching a similar message to Jesus. The kingdom is coming. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, so John has been executed now, but some people, it seems, think, Herod at least, seem to think John has come back from the dead, and that's who Jesus is. Others say well, Jesus is Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, miracle worker of the Old Testament. Um, they see Jesus, they see things that look like Elijah's ministry from the Old Testament. They say, well, you're, you're Elijah, or Jeremiah is another one. Um, Jeremiah, a great prophet of doom and gloom. And Jesus, you keep saying the end is coming, judgment's coming. Uh, and even as Jeremiah had so many people who hated him and derided him and persecuted him, people are starting to hate you. You're like the prophet Jeremiah. Or, or one of the other prophets. Um, what do we make of these answers people are saying about, about Jesus' identity? Well, they're obvi- people are obviously aware something unique is here in Jesus. Um, that there's some authority here. They haven't had a prophet, except for John the Baptist, in 400 years. So 
To say he's a prophet is to say God is doing something, God is speaking and acting through him in a, in a, in a, in a remarkable way with, with, with freshness and power. Um, otherwise, how could Christ be doing these, these mighty works? So they're, they're seeing something in him. But they're missing so much in him to say that he is a prophet because they're, they're saying he's, he's, he's like those other prophets. But they're not realizing he's the prophet. He's the great and final prophet. He's, he is the one who has promised capital P prophet, the Messiah, the, the Christ who would come, the great king as well as the prophet. They're willing to accept that he does some impressive things, but they're not yet ready to say he is the Christ. And that's the fundamental thing. And they miss it. Not because it isn't there, because they're not ready to see it. But then Jesus turns the question on his disciples, aims it right at them. He says, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? He asked it of his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And brothers and sisters, he aims it right at our hearts too. He speaks through his word to us, who do you say that I am? Um, It's the most important question. It is the most important question in the world. Who do you say that Jesus is? That, That question defines everything. Uh, for you. And if we're going to answer it rightly, we've got to understand it on a couple levels here. First, first, this question he's giving us is operating on two levels. First of all, it's theological. What do you, what, what's the truth? What's the doctrine? What's the proposition that you believe about Jesus? Uh, you've got to know the truth about him. You've got to know who he is according to the word of God. You've got to know what he's revealed himself. Uh, you, you can't get it wrong. You've got to study it and understand it and know the doctrine. That's one part of it. But the question is not just on that level. It's also at a second level. It's also a very personal question. It's, a, it's an existential question. Who do you say that I am? Is not the same question as Jesus saying, what's true about me? It, it's true about him that he's the Christ. But, but saying, framing the question as he does, who do you say that I am? He's saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to put your faith in me? The demons could give the doctrinal answer, right? Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. But they could not say, right, you are, you, are, you are the Christ, you are my Christ, and you are my Savior. Jesus is putting that point on this question for his disciples. Do you say, do you trust that I'm the Christ? Look with me at Peter's answer. How does Peter answer the question? He speaks for himself. I think he speaks here for all the disciples in verse 16. He says, as Jesus asks this probing question, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Let's dig into his answer together. Um, He says Christ, right? That's not Jesus' last name. That's the title, Messiah, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, this is the one who was promised, the one who would come and be the great savior of God's people in the last Day. And Jesus is uh, Jesus has shown this clearly through his words and his works. And Peter and the other disciples see that he is the Christ, the, the Messiah, the anointed one, the final savior of Israel. They still have lots of misconceptions about who the Christ is. And in a week or two, we'll see Jesus clear those up for them. Uh, but, but, uh, but they do see that Jesus is the one, the savior, the Christ. But then Peter adds more here. And what he adds is very interesting, very, uh, very helpful for us in unpacking what he means about calling him the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What, what does he mean when he says you're the son of the living God? It's an interesting expression. 
Um, to understand, I think we want to we want to turn to the Old Testament. This is Peter's Bible. This is what he's. This is the context he's drawing on when he says, "You're the son of the living God." Uh, what does What does he mean when he says this? We have to turn to the Old Testament and see. Um, we see in the Old Testament, "Son of God" talked about in, in three particular ways. The first son of God you see in the Old Testament is Adam, created in God's image, created like a son to him. Uh, Luke's gospel actually makes it explicit. He calls Adam the son of God, right? Not, not divine son, but a man that God made in his image, bearing his image, and uh, his task is to rule over creation for God's glory as God's steward. That's the first uh, that's the first son of God we see in the Bible. The second son of God we see in the Bible is Israel. Israel's called God's son. Uh, Exodus. Um, Exodus 4.22, God says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. They're supposed to bear God's image, reflect his glory, and rule for his sake over, the, over, the, over this world, uh, to be his representatives on earth. And then there's a third son. The king of Israel is called God's son. We saw this in Psalm 2. So we see all these sons in the Old Testament, sons of God. Not divine sons, but, but they, they bear his image and they have this role of, of, of representing him to the world. Uh, but we see all of them fail. Adam fails. Israel fails. The kings fail. All of them. Sons of God, but they fail in that sonship. They fail to represent him rightly. They fail to rule for him well and to extend his glory over the whole earth. And so throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing this repeating theme. There's going to, there needs to be a son of God who bears his image and who rules for his glory. And we keep seeing this repeated, that we need this, but we, we can't find it. And there's going to be one who comes who will finally be that son of God who does this perfectly. There's a prophecy in Hosea chapter 1, verse 11, which is strikingly close to Peter's confession here in Matthew 16. Listen to Isaiah 1.11. It says, In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Sons of the living God. Sons of the living God. Um, in Hosea, God is rebuking His people. They've been spiritually unfaithful. They've broken covenant with Him. They've not been good sons of God. But He's telling them, I'm going to make you good sons. I will call you again one day, the sons of the living God. Um, and now, Peter, Peter is here, and his confession is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you're that Adam that should have been. You're what Israel should have been. You're what David should have been. Solomon should have been what Israel should have been. You are the Son of the living God. You are the one who perfectly bears the image of God and you are the one in whom Israel is finally going to be saved and restored and made what it always should have been. Peter's words here uh, tell what he has come to see about Jesus and understand about Jesus and also loved ones what he's beginning to trust about Jesus for himself. Um, they're, they're, they're starting to see Jesus is the Israelite they failed to be. He, he's the Jew that they have failed to be. He's, he's kept the law they should have kept and they failed to keep. Uh, he, 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 is, he is the one who has lived the faithful life of obedience to God. It, loved ones, um, Jesus is the Son means that uh, in Him we're, we're saved. 
We're counted righteous. We're forgiven of our sins. We're restored to God's presence. We're welcomed into the kingdom of God. And because He's the Son, we're made sons. We're brought in. Uh, we're, we're counted in Him. And, and we're given a place in His family. Made sons of the living God as well. This is what we see here in Peter's confession. And loved ones, this should be in our confession too. That He is the Son, and in Him we are sons of the living God also. If that is your confession, you should rejoice. As Jesus says, He says to Peter, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. If you've come to see this, it's because of the grace of God in Christ to you, not because of your own smarts to figure it out. So rejoice and worship and praise Him that He has shown it to you. So this is what we see here about Christ's identity. He's the Messiah, the Promised One, the Savior, and He's the Son of the living God. And now we see what He promises to us that He will do. Verses 18-20. to Jesus praises Peter that he's confessed his faith and made, and then, he, then, he, then Jesus makes a promise to him and to us in verses 18 through 19. He says, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's unpack the promise Jesus is making. Two things. Number one, the church belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. Um, these are remarkable verses here. Jesus' words here are, are, uh, are, uh, are, 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 are crucial for us to understand. This is the first time that he mentions the church. Up to this point, he's been talking about the kingdom of God. But now he uses, now he uses the word church. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, what, what, what does he mean by church? Why is he saying this here? The Greek word is, is ekklesia. It's the word often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for congregation or assembly of, of Israel, the gathered people of Israel. Uh, so Jesus is saying that there, there, there's, there's a church, there's a congregation that I've gathered out that, that, that's, uh, that, that, that's my church. You notice how he says that? He emphasizes that here. I will build my church. My congregation, my people, my Israel. There's a renewed covenant community happening. There's, there's a new creation happening. And now it's no longer, do you belong to Israel, but do you belong to Christ, the true Israel, the Son of the living God? And are you part of His family? In the Old Testament, uh, you are, uh, you, we hear the Lord say, Israel is my people. Right? I will be their God. They will be my people. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. This is my church, my people, my, my, my own. Um, this is what the church is. It's the, it's the new Israel that belongs to Christ. What, is this, what does this mean for us, loved ones? Very simply, it means this is Jesus' church, isn't it? The church is Jesus' church. This church is Jesus' church. It's part of His kingdom. We exist in this body of believers because of Christ. We are defined by our relationship to Christ. And everything that we do here needs to be done in the light of this fact. I don't own this church. You don't own this church. Jesus does. It's His. We belong to Him. Um, we don't run this church. Jesus runs this church. He's in charge. Everything that we do here, loved ones, then, needs to be done because it's what Jesus has told us to do in His Word. 
and we should not be go beyond that. We're not allowed to hijack the church for our own purposes and our own agenda. We see this, right? We, we often feel tempted to do this, I think. We, pee, we, see, we see people tempted to make the church their church, serving their political agenda, their social agenda, rather than serving Christ and his kingdom because it's his church. Uh, our mission is his mission and nothing else because we are his church. And because we are Jesus' church, we have this sweet promise from him and this wonderful confidence as he, as he tells us here that he will build his church. This is the second thing I want to draw out from his promise. Jesus will build his church. Like any good builder, he starts with a foundation. Um, he starts with, with, a, with, a, with a solid, firm foundation on which to build the rest. And he tells us here the foundation is Peter. Um, he tells Peter that he's going to make him part of the great foundation of this new, this new kingdom that he's erecting. Um, he, he's, he's playing with words here. Peter's name means rock. It sounds like the word Petra, right, which, which means rock. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you've confessed that, that, that I am the Christ and you've, you've made a good confession. And so as you make that confession, you are a foundation on which I can build. Um, he's not saying that Peter is the only exclusive foundation of the church. We'll see later on in the New Testament, Jesus is called the foundation of the church. Uh, but uh, the apostles and prophets, as Ephesians 2.19.20 says, are part of the foundation as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus here has given us a wonderful and firm foundation to build on, that he builds on, that we are built on. And that foundation is the word of God. That, that's, what, that's what the foundation is for us. It's, it's this Bible right here. Um, this is the confession about who he is. The prophets, the apostles, Peter's confession, right? This is why we know Christ. This is why we can know anything about him is because the apostles spoke of him by his spirit's power. The New Testament would not exist without the apostles having written it. This is our foundation, the truth of the gospel that we have been told. But Jesus not only promises Peter that he's making them a foundation on which he'll build his church, he also makes this promise. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Notice the future context, the future tense that Jesus uses. I will build my church, he says. Uh, there's a future orientation that's going on here. Uh, he's talking about the church as the end time people of God. He's going to build his church, he's saying. He's going to do it um, in his death and resurrection, he's going to overcome death and he's going to pour out his spirit and he's going to begin this new people of God. And so, loved ones, think about this carefully with me. Um, when Jesus rises from the dead, pours out his spirit from heaven on his church, that's, a, that's how he builds his church. And as he does that, he fills the church with, with supernatural power. He is at work in his church to build his church with supernatural power. We see this obviously in the book of Acts. Miracles being done, right? We see the foundation laid. We see miraculous work happening there. We don't see that happening continuing um, because that foundation has been built. But it's no less the supernatural power of God at work, continuing to build his church. One of my favorite theologians, uh, Gerhardus Voss, writes this. He says, The church has within her the powers of the world to come. 
One commentator puts it this way, says, the church is an outpost in history of the final eschatological community. All that means is that the church is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven already entering into history. Uh, that, that the resurrection life of Christ is already at work in his church. His spirit, divine power, already at work in his church. This means that our church is a colony of heaven. That his spirit's at work here. Uh, that, 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 uh, that, that our church is filled with the very power of God at work in us to build this church. He does it through simple means. To show the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. He does it through the foolishness of preaching and the, and the word of God and the sacraments, right? What weak things they look like to, 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 to eyes of flesh, but, but his supernatural power by his spirit is at work to build his church here. He does it through, he does it through church discipline. He tells Peter here, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's the language of authority. He's giving his officers in his church authority to, to, to exercise discipline in the church for his sake. So it's through these ordinary means that Christ will build his church. And so the very ordinary ministry of the word, the sacraments, prayer, church discipline that we're doing here is the supernatural work of God among you. And loved ones, what this means for us is that there is no doubt about how this is going to end. There's no doubt about how this is going to end. Jesus is building his church. And that means he's not going to stop building his church. He doesn't, you know, you're driving down the road, you see this house someone started five years ago, they never finished the roof, and it's slowly decaying. Right? That's not how Jesus works. He builds his church, and he doesn't quit until it's completed. His promise here is that he is going to bring his church all the way safely to glory at last. Um, it's an outpost of the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to bring it all the way to heaven. We, we, we see so much that seems to stand against us. There's our own sin, our own unbelief, how quick we are to forget his promises and to drift from him. Um, we see the powers of darkness, the powers of Satan. We see a world that hates Christ. We see a world that wants to persecute the church, seduce the church, crush the church. Um, and we see, uh, we see death itself, right? Which seems to be the final enemy that nothing is stronger than. But Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death, the powers of darkness won't prevail against it. That, that nothing can overcome the work of Christ in his church. Not a single member of his church will be lost. No threat or enemy or opponent of Christ or his church will have the victory. Because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he will build his church. This is his church. Loved ones, he has risen from the dead. He is reigning in heaven, God's right hand, and he will not stop until he has completed what he has begun. So the question, this is who he is, this is his mission, the question, do you trust him? Do you believe that he'll do this? Are you following him? Let's pray. Gracious God, give us eyes to see Christ more clearly. Give us hearts to respond in faith and love. We pray that you would continue your good work by your, glory, by your grace and for your glory here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.